On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, it is time for the brightest conversation in Hamilton podcasting. And so we need someone who can do that, hold up his end, and I got just the person. We're going to talk politics. We're going to talk world events. We're going to talk all kinds of, including cartooning with Graham McKay, the Hamilton Spectator's amazing editorial cartoonist. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Time for the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio is what we like to call it. And, you know, to do that, we need to have one of the brightest people in Hamilton. And I'll tell you, I, I, I say with no sarcasm at all, this guy is one of them. Not only is he one of the brightest people, but he has, I said before the break, I think the hardest job and does it better than anyone. That would be the editorial cartoonist of a newspaper having to be on top of everything clever, funny, witty, pithy, tight with your comments and something that everyone can understand and laugh at. And that would, of course, would be Graham McKay of the Hamilton Spectator who joins us today. Graham, how are you? I'm great. You always do the best introductions. Thank you, Scott, for that. Well, I just read what you give me. So I, you know, that's, um, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> As the authoritative voice since Tom Charrington. Yeah, well, you know, today is National Radio Day, so there oh. you're a Hamilton guy. You grew up in the city. Who do you, who do you remember you or your parents listening to on the radio? I remember my mother listening to the Betty Kennedy show uh, in, uh, in from Toronto 1010 on your dial. Um, I know they they always talked about frilly things like the top, the phone-in shows. Um but then there's also the the John Hardy show and I guess that was sort of the, the radio guy that was on all the time in the Nova that we were driving around all the time uh, talking to Hamilton about the, you know, the leading stories of the day. So yeah, those two probably are the, are the ones I remember the most. Yeah. I, um, I, I didn't grow up. My, my, my youth was in, uh, was in Toronto. And so it was uh, once upon a time before it became a news station, it used to be uh, uh um, what was the CFTR? I can't even remember now what it was called. It was all like, it was hits. I was a kid. It was hits me. Mike Cooper and those guys. So anyway, yes, we all have the people. We all have the, the names yeah. from the past. But it was I'll tell you what. Whatever your parents were, um, you know, probably making you listen to. And it was always my parents that were, I guess later on in my teens, it was, you know, I, I'd advanced to alternative radio, CFNY and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. Well, let me ask evolution. you a question, Graham. In your car, because I know what it was like in my family car, in your car, did you get to tell your parents what music you were going to listen to, or were you listening to what they put on back in the day? Oh, absolutely not. They they would put on, I remember driving to my grandparents in Toronto, we'd have to listen to a show called Calling All Britons with some guy <laughs> with a very thick British accent. And it was always, you know, 1010 on your dial that we had to listen to. Um, nowadays, I... I I don't listen to, uh, I, I do listen to CHML a bit, but I also listen to CBC and I impose that sort of thing on my kids. So they, they hate it just as much as I hated 1010 when I was growing up, but eventually they'll love it. They'll love uh, radio. I, I hope, I hope it still has a future, you know? Oh, it does. It absolutely does. And, and he, it, you know, it, you in, know what? In, in two, two areas that may be gone in a, in a few yeah. more years. You know, it's National Radio Day. Let's got to be upbeat about this stuff. Um, I, I, I was. What do you expect? We were one of those families that I never got to have a say in the car, and I don't even know what the station was that my dad would put on there. But it was some sort of light 
fluff, light hits or light whatever. And not only was it light, but they had it down at a volume so low that you, you needed amplification devices to pick it up. I never understood. You've got a radio, turn it up and listen. And, and occasionally you would hear a note. And that, that was about the extent of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that as well. I remember actually on my drives back from Toronto back to Dundas, where I grew up, it would always be a very low-level opera music playing. Just, <laughs> I think it was designed to lull us to sleep. Maybe that was what was going on. Maybe, maybe. Now, my wife will, you know, if I put on l- almost any song, any hit song from the 70s, my wife will immediately be able to sing all the words. And she was very young then, but that was her, her parents had the, the seventies songs on all the time. So any, yeah. I mean, you, you have Gloria yeah. Gaynor come on with, I will survive or any, like any, anything. And suddenly it's like flashback time to her youth in the car. Yeah. Well, she, she had cool parents. I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I had the cool parents who would play the cool, you know, music from the seventies. It was all just talk radio nonstop talk radio and opera music opera music you know but but i'll say this um i bet you now that even though it i mean it may not i don't know if it is or isn't at the top of your list i bet you can tolerate opera though now um i don't know if can I you want tolerate to that publicly <laughs> yes i do i do i do tolerate it but that's that's what happens I when you age, right? I don't, I don't yeah, but I didn't say it was your first choice. But if it's on, it's not painful to your ears because you've been no. introduced to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I I have a playlist on Spotify with op- nothing but opera music. And I, admittedly, I don't listen to it a lot, but it's there when I feel compelled to listen to opera music. So See? You know. See, it works. It works. Yeah. You can train your offspring by just playing. It's subliminal stuff, but it, you know, it works. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to ask you about this because um, the mayor was on with Bill Kelly this morning and they were talking about a, a push that's going to be on that. He's going to be pushing for to have mandatory vaccines for municipal employees today. And that's, you know, some are going to agree, some are going to disagree, whatever. Um, but there was a part of the story that I just could not believe. And that was when, when the piece was written by CHML on the CHML website, it pointed out that, and if you find this, you can find this on the city manager's website. The city of Hamilton apparently has 9,000 employees, according to the city manager's website. Hamilton is the fourth largest city in Ontario and has 9,000 municipal employees working in a wide range of disciplines and career fields. That's what it says. How is it possible that a city like Hamilton could have 9,000 employees? Hmm. Well, what's, what, are, what are we ranging? So we're ranging from the guy who picks up, you know, cigarette butts in the park to the city manager, I guess, right? 9,000? That's, that's, that is huge. Uh, do you have a rundown of, of how? No, it doesn't how, say what the rundown is. No, but it doesn't. It, but the point is, it doesn't say what it is. It says in a range of disciplines and career fields. But Graham, I like I look at this and I think we're always talking in this city about how we are taxed to the hilt, how we're one of the highest tax cities in Canada, right. and now you wonder why we've got nine thousand people working for the city of Hamilton, and I don't know how many I expected were going to be working for the city. But boy, that's an, that's an, to me anyway, that's an extraordinary number of people because don't forget 
that's on top of the however many thousand live in the city who are working for the province and the however many thousand are working for the federal government. Mm-hmm. We're just, right. we're swimming in public servants around here. You know, the public service is, you know, part of our GNP. It's, it's something that is essential. I, mean, I remember, remember Tim Hudak uh, came, came around with a, a promise to reduce it and, and everyone freaked out over that because, you know, the public service is really, it's a, it's an employment thing. It's a scheme to, to keep people well paid in this province and, you know, keep them sort of looking like they're doing work. And I know we've gone through countless efforts to, to chop the bureaucracy, um, at least on the provincial and federal. I don't, I don't know how well they've done it on provincial, but as, as far as I know from my contacts on the, the municipal level, there have been cuts happening. But yeah, you're right. I mean, these are very well paid jobs, but they're, they're, they're kind of essential for keeping the economy propped up. That's just the way it is. Sort of. And I agree with you, sort of. I mean, it, certainly there are a lot of people being paid good money to do these jobs, but there is no bureaucrat that has ever created a dollar. <laughs> I mean, the, the private sector is what drives the economy and creates the wealth, and then that's taxed to go to the public sector. Yes, I know they pay their taxes and put money into the economy, but nothing has been brought into the economy by them. And I, and again, I, I just... I over the last year and a half where we keep hearing about, you know, how the economy is suffering and restaurants are hurting and this and that. And I'm like, and we got 9,000 municipal employees. Now this number may be wrong, although I'm taking it right from the website that says message from the city manager. Um, but this number could be wrong. It could be lower now, whatever, but, uh, boy, I mean, surely when every other business, every other industry private industry in the world, it seems in the last year and a half has found ways to find efficiencies and do the same or more with fewer people. Mm -hmm. I don't want people laid off, but surely there's a way to say, we're going to have a complete and absolute hiring freeze so that over the next three years, anyone who retires or leaves the public service is not going to be replaced. And we will find ways to do with the people we have the stuff we've done. I, I, Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, 9,000 just seems crazy. But how, I mean, hiring freezes has, has been the way it's been for for years, though. I, haven't we had hiring freezes on all levels of government for you know at least the, the past ten years? And efficiencies and efficiencies are these sort of buzzwords that you hear all the time. Um, but how how far do they go? You know, and now that we've got the pandemic, all I hear you know there's so many slowdowns happening as well, like like delays, everything. COVID has been the best excuse to to not get anything done. And I just don't understand in many regions of bureaucracy, why, you know, why can't you get your driver's license? You know, why do we have to wait so long to get it renewed? And I, I just don't understand when so many people are working from home and that sort of thing that we're, we're finding ourselves in a deeper mess than, than we were, you know, at, at this time, even though all these efficiencies and, and trimmings and, you know, cutting the fat, you know, how many cartoons have I drawn the, in the past 10, 15 years on that? And still, we've we've got 9,000 people working in a in a city of, of 500,000. I'd like to know how that compares with other cities across. Yeah, Canada. I would like to too. I would like to too, yeah. and I'm going to start looking into it because, boy, it seems like. And, and to answer your question, we got to take a break. But to answer your question, maybe if you own your own restaurant or own business, you know you have to hustle to keep your job, or you're going to go bankrupt. Whereas if you 
you know, have a public job, it's guaranteed. You, you have to do something extraordinarily horrendous to lose that. So, you know, and a great pension at the end of it. Yes. Yes. And even if you get laid off, you're going to get a settlement or something in all likelihood. It's just, it's, it, wow. 9,000. I, that, that is, I say that number just caught me completely off guard today. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Brian, let me ask you a question. Just your, your sense of this. We know there's been all kinds of talk about getting people vaccinated and hesitancy and people who say they're not going to and all the rest. Who do you think define, describe who you believe would be the typical person who would not get vaccinated or would be hesitant to get vaccinated? My sister-in-law. <laughs> okay. So which means that won't get vaccinated. Don't we have, I mean, I have, I have sister-in-laws on both sides of my family my own family and my, my, well, not, yeah, my, my wife's family and my sister-in-law. Um, okay. Anyway, so I, I'm probably embarrassing them right now. So no, I, but okay. So rough age, political sensibility, all that kind of stuff. Give me the picture of what that person would look like in your mind. Well, there are the granola types who are in their fifties. Uh, okay. Um, they're not right wingers. They're, they're health nuts. Those are the ones that I know of. But on the other side, you get, you know, the, the people who are on the Trump sides, the, you know, the, the people who are kind of hesitant about vaccines because he caused all that sort of mess a few months ago. And, and we've got that, but, you know, it, it goes on both extremes. Well, the reason I asked you, and you're very astute, I'll tell you this, you're really astute because I, I think a lot of people, the instant reaction would have been, oh, they're all the right-wing crazies. Abacus did a bunch of polling across Canada to ask, what, who are the people who are not wanting to get vaccinated, who, who have said absolutely not, or are who are hesitant to get vaccinated? Now, the hesitant ones I find fascinating because according to the Abacus polling, 46% of the hesitant live in Ontario. 59% are women. The average age is 42. So everything you've said so far has been bang on. And if they were voting in a federal election today, 35% would vote liberal, 25% conservative, 17 NDP, 9% green. So not just all on the right. There's more of them, right. way more on the left than on the right. But here, right. Graham, this is the part about this that I find the most fascinating. They asked, what's your reason for not wanting to get vaccinated or being hesitant. Number one reason, I hate the government telling me what to do. 85% of those people say that's their number one reason. And number um, four, 66%, I don't trust the government. Hmm. What does hmm. that say? What does that say, not necessarily even about them, but about so the problems that governments to... face now, if nobody seems to, or a lot of people don't seem to buy, believe what they're doing? Well, I guess, is there a question about um, the, the health care? Like, it's not, the doctor is only, I mean, the, the, the government is following what the doctors are telling them, I would think, the health panels and that sort of thing. So I guess what you're basically saying is that you don't trust the doctors as well. And I, I hear there's a lot of that going on as well. And I don't think that's just necessarily something that applies to the right. I think it applies to the left as well. Like there's a lot of mistrust for doctors. But and how? For, how did this for, happen? For Western medicine. I think you've How got did a lot this of, happen? Well, 
coming from the left, I think you've got a lot of people who are into naturopathic science and homeopathy and, you know, all this, you know, Asian sort of uh, medicine. And they're buying into that more so than, you know, the, the science that um, we pay our taxes to provide with our Medicare. And um, I, I just think there's it goes even beyond government. I think it's just mistrust of, of the healthcare system. As soon as you walk into a hospital, there's mistrust. And, you know, I, I've read things on comment boards about people who just say, look, you know, as soon as you go in the hospital and people are sticking tubes into your lungs and stuff like that, that's when the problems start happening. And I find that quite alarming. Um, but that, that's, a, that's the sentiment amongst a lot of people. Here are yeah, the five top, so I, I said what two of them were, but here are the five top reasons that the hesitant have told Abacus Polling that they say are the reasons they're hesitant. Number one, I hate government telling me what to do. 85% of the hesitant say that. 83% say they're reluctant to take any vaccines. 66% say vaccines cause a lot of problems and they're covered up. 66% tied with that say they don't trust the government. And number five, uh, as you just said, try to avoid prescriptions and take nat the natural path in mm -hmm. that. But it, it, I don't think that it's always been the case that A, that people have so strongly it seems distrusted the government or be so strongly distrusted medicine i i'm i'm trying to figure out when this happened because i'm guessing if you're looking at what i just described and what they described as the average person they all had their inoculations as kids their parents all gave them these inoculations when did this happen well isn't it, a lot of us is led let's face it by social media like the youtube videos and the the constant barrage of commentary on Facebook and on Twitter. And, you know, we're bombarded by all kinds of fake and bad information. And you got to measure that up with the, the science. And I think the more, more sensible ones amongst us who are getting our vaccination are, are being led by the science. And we know, you know, that this isn't just something, vaccines haven't been just, you know, dreamt up and, and developed in the last two years it's taken decades uh, since you know the SARS uh, happened in, in the early 2000s and this is a development that's been happening and science knows that this is this was going to happen like years ago and I think we got to put more faith into that that end the people who actually have degrees in medic medicine not you know you know, just watching one YouTube and then being convinced that uh, it's all a conspiracy to kill everyone off. And, uh, for, who knows? It's just what do you think that provides great fodder for, for what I do for a living. Yeah. And, uh, do you think it helps though, or hurts when we have the prime minister and the mayor around here essentially saying, if you don't get it, there will be consequences. You have to get it. We're going to, do you think that makes the people who are hesitant say, yes, I think I'd better. Or do you think it makes them say, oh man, if they are doing this, I really don't want to get it. Well, I, I think people are going to dig in their heels and they're going to say, yeah, it's, this is uh, the, the conspiracy gets deeper. What I do like or what's happened in Ontario is that they're just making it more inconvenient for people. You know, if you want to, if you're working in healthcare or education, you know, okay, you can, you can stick to your guns and, and be anti-vax, but you're going to have to watch an educational session. You're going to have to get daily tests where the, you know, a, a, a Q-tip is poked into your brain. Like <laughs> these are sort of things that are going to cause some people to just get vaccinated because the science shows that's the only way you're going to, we're, we're going to get out of this whole thing at this point. And then the booster is going to come later and all this. But 
by sitting on your your seats and just waiting for you know approval to come from the FDA or the various you know governmental groups, it's going to take forever. And uh, I think people need to have a little bit more faith in, the, in w- w- what the science is saying. It's it's not a conspiracy. It's we're, we, we've gone through this countless times before in the in the last century with the various. I don't need to look. I'm, I get so bored even like talking about this, and and we've we've been drilled we've we've been drilled constantly over the cholera and and you know the polio and all this yep, sort of thing. It's yep. just become so. It's almost like people just don't care anymore whether you're for it or you're against it, and it's uh, I don't know. I guess death get, isn't the death. Get, death is death the yeah. Isn't going to be the answer. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Graham, the the story this week, unquestionably the overriding story that has dominated everything else is what's happening in Afghanistan, which is just, I mean, the images from there are are horrendous. The stories coming out of there, even as late as today, that Taliban members are going around door to door, finding people who cooperated with Canada and the States and executing them on the spot is, I hope they're just exaggerated, but I think there's every reason to believe they're not. Um, you know, the, the, I read something today that says this is a more, um, horrendous moment for the States and embarrassing and humiliating than even Vietnam was that it may be the most humiliating moment for the United States ever. Is that, is that too strong or is this in the ballpark? Is this in the discussion? Hmm. Wow. Well, I guess we're leaving the fun issues for later on in this session. We are. <laughs> we are. We're getting through the heavy stuff first. Right. Well, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of comparisons have been made to the Vietnam situation. I, I don't know if you can make com- as many comparisons, but there there is some learning that America will, will take from this. And perhaps uh, it will be to the world's detriment because I think we're, we're going to see... Uh, America pull back significantly uh, in world affairs. Um, I think Biden was saying today that there are other parts of the world that concern him more. And there are these tiny little regions that I guess are a little more manageable for the United States at this time. But, you know, I think I, I think it's been resolved for the last 10 years that Afghanistan has just been a, a, a quagmire similar to what Vietnam was. But it's it's almost it's. It wasn't like Vietnam because Vietnam was in the minds of of Americans for for look, on a daily basis. Whereas for the last I, I don't know past five years at least, it's been out of out of sight, out of mind of most Americans. I mean, and credit that to Donald Trump with his craziness, but it it hasn't been there. And of course for Canada, you know, we've been out of there since what 2014, and it's. You know, it hasn't really been in in the news cycle at all. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like thrust into our awareness uh, just on the even election. And uh, I think it's kind of freaked out the prime minister and his party. I don't think he really appreciates it. But for America, I think it's uh, there's a learning opportunity and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. There have been for years now, there have been those who have said the United States should not be the world's policeman. That's not, that's a role that, you know, they've taken on over the years and that's, it's an offensive role for them to be involved in. And yet they pull out of Afghanistan and everything completely like in moments falls apart. And I'm wondering like, does this 
make us rethink that idea that maybe they should be the world's policemen? Or does it make us say, don't get involved in the first place. And you know what? If they want to kill each other, let them kill each other, but just don't get in there. Mm. Well, I suppose it depends on what part of the world you come from. I think coming out of the Cold War, uh, we depend on the United States to keep us safe uh, from the Soviets. Uh, I think right now there's a growing fear that um, China is going to emerge as the one that takes over from Afghanistan and sort of go through the country and allow the terrorism to happen and allow, you know, all the horrible stuff done towards women and girls. And it, they'll just use the country to extract minerals for the benefit of China. And that's the sort of thing that I think we sort of depend on America. Like America is certainly not uh, innocent of extracting resources from countries on overseas uh, expeditions. But um, I, I think I think there's a role that America has to play just uh, for the West as we have a world that still continues to be divided by, you know, the, the totalitarian versus democracy ideologies. And who, who knows? But I, I think we still kind of hope that America will be there to as much as we kind of uh, get sick and tired of their uh, intervention overseas, we kind of depend on them to keep us safe as well and keep the world that we sort of uh, share with the Americans uh, safe for our benefit as well. This, um, we got to go to a break here, but you know, we're, we're, this story is not going to end anytime soon. And because you just know that at any point, heaven forbid, touching wood, crossing fingers, if anything were to bad were to happen as far as a terrorist at attack or something on Americans, it'll be pointed to this moment that we allowed this or they allowed this to happen fair or not. I mean, it's, it, and that's, that's, that's where this whole thing, you know, do you police or do you not police? Do you get involved? Do you not get involved? And I'm not sure that I'm not sure we know. I mean, you could always second guess. You can always go back and second guess. I'm not sure it's, an, you know, I know it's not as easy to make the choice up front, but boy, it looks like it's a disaster over there right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Elon Musk, apparently, story is, is developing something called the Tesla bot which is supposed to be a robot, a five foot eight human kind of looking robot. And his explanation behind this is he anticipates the day will come when his robot will be able to do all the work that we do right now. And we'll just all live around and do whatever we do and earn a universal living and not have to work at all. Would this be good? Would you like it if you never had to work again and we had a robot doing your stuff and doing everyone else's stuff? Would this be good or would this be a really bad thing to just be able to sit around and do nothing? Well, naturally, you know, my mind goes to the gutter when I think of a, a, a <laughs> robot of such, such, such kind. I mean, really. A sex bot? Come on. Well, that's all. eventually, it always goes there, right? Eventually. And if the sex bot does all the work then anyway uh <laughs> is it a good thing no it's not a good thing because then we become taken over by these robots and uh what, what good are humans really well even beyond that i you know the sort of i i listened to this and i thought more about like is it not good for people to do something work to do work like i i know we hear all the time about oh i can't wait to just not work but isn't it positive for us to be productive it is positive. And, you know, 
living in a pandemic, and you and I are very fortunate because we just have to wake up and go to our basements and, and work. So the pandemic has shown us, a few lucky ones, how, you know, how easy work is. You get a good income and you just have to basically go from your bed to your desktop and either talk into it or type into it or draw into it in my case. Um, but more and more, you know, we're getting into a life of really not doing very much. It's, um, and now they're talking about robots replacing us. That seems a bit crazy and scary. And I mean, we've, we've been replaced by robots in so many different fields. I'm trying to think, you know, there, there are a few things that they can't really replace us with, but more, the more you think of with artificial intelligence and all that, we are really becoming replaced and the end is near. Well, and I would have initially sloughed this off and said, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. And yet at the same time, um, probably 20 years ago, we would have laughed at Elon Musk saying we're going to have electric cars that can drive by themselves and we're going to have, you know, citizens, civilians going up in space and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, give it enough time. And these ideas that get started by some of these tech wizards, they, they seem to come to be. And I don't know. I, I look at this and I think there's an awful lot of people listening who would say, I'd love the idea where I didn't have to do anything. I could sit at home all day. My robot could do everything for me and I just get a paycheck. I think it would well, be I, awful. It would give us more time for hobbies, I guess. And that would like more time to paint, you know, landscapes and things like that. Like robots can't do that. Robots can't. Not yet. They can't draw editorial cartoons, can they? I mean, not yet. <laughs> not, not yet. Well, they can't do radio shows, can they? Uh, oh, can I. They? You know what? Probably there is now. They probably sound a little more stilted and robotic. I mean, hence the name. But no, I, I, I you know, your, your thing about all these hobbies and stuff. But at some point, and I don't want to get too philosophical with this, but I, I think some of our, our our sense of worth and everything comes from being productive and earning a day's pay for doing a day's work for most of us. Anyway, I think there's something in the human psyche that wants to be productive and not just sit around and do nothing. Right. But you were also talking earlier on in our session about the bloated bureaucracy we have here in Hamilton with 9,000 people. So maybe a lot of those people could be replaced by robots. And wouldn't that be a good thing, at least for the property taxpayer of the city? You know, you have someone who's actually, you know, using, you know, computers to calculate um, uh, property taxes rather than, you know, um, I don't know, uh, human beings with ledgers and things like that. I'm sure we still use very antiquated systems to do stuff, only to keep people propped up and keeping the politicians happy with... uh, with productivity levels and that sort of thing and, and the taxes coming in and all that. So, you know, um, I, I don't know. It's, I think a mix of robotics and human uh, energy uh, is a good thing. Why not? Elon Musk says the bot is intended to be friendly. This is his quote, intended to be friendly and navigate through a world built for humans. And it's only going to be 125 pounds and walk at five miles an hour so that we can overpower easily if they rise up against us, I guess. <laughs> I guess these are things you got to think about. What jobs would they, what, what jobs would we be willing to give up for these robots? What do you think? Like, I, I mean, I'm kind of putting on you the spot because there are 
people who we value doing the daily job of, you know, collecting garbage and there's one, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I love the garbage men. The garbage men are wonderful. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that they do is now robotic anyway. I mean, when you see them lifting up the green bin, I mean, half the, all they're doing is just putting the green bin into the little clamp that, that dumps the garbage into the, into the truck. So what, what's next? Do we get like robots on wheels to do the human job? Um, so, well, I mean, you could you, literally almost anything. I mean, uh, and I know that the creative is something that would be tougher to do, but anything that is sort of repetitious or repeating work, you, easy. That, they could, yeah. they could do that. But have easy. you seen the technology? The technology are like these, these goats that jump around and, and, and move around. And that's what you see on the videos on YouTube right now about robotics right now. There, or there are these clunky you know, machines that look like humans that move very slowly and are awkward. I don't think we're quite there yet. And I think we're probably a few decades away from something that mimics the human being rather than these jumping goats that you see on YouTube, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I've seen the jumping goats. Uh, I, <laughs> I eventually we'll have robot jumping goats and we'll laugh and laugh and laugh when we see them on YouTube channels. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring Graham McKay back in, as I say, editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator, unbelievably talented guy who does amazing work. And if you don't see his cartoons in the paper, online, wherever, um, you are, well, you're a fool. <laughs> you need to be looking at Graham's cartoons. Uh, by the way, before we get to cartooning, Graham, because I want to talk about that. Speaking of fools i i just in the last little while heard this story about this now this story about the guy taking over as host of jeopardy seemed to be so much about very little but boy oh boy now this guy mike richards who had d declared himself the host of the show who had been the producer i guess has been run out of dodge because he said some nasty things on a podcast eight or nine years ago and that's the end of him yeah Mike Richards, wow! But first of all, uh, yeah, congratulations to Ben. We're Absolutely. Um, but yeah, Mike Richards. Yeah, we watch uh, Jeopardy every night, and I, I actually watched him um, do his little song and dance a few months ago. I guess he did a good job. But I, it's unbelievable how much this has become like the big talking news. I, I was just tuning into CNN before I came on the air, and. They're talking about this. Like Jeopardy is has supplanted, you know, Afghanistan and COVID and everything else going on in the world. This is like the top issue, and it's it's amazing. It just shows you how America has just become obsessed by their, their dumb game shows. Well, I I, I, yeah, I don't quite get it, but there has been absolute bile about this, like fury and rage. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, you know, Afghanistan is worthy of your fury and rage. I'm not sure. I, guest or a host of a game show should rise to that same level. But I think people have been madder about this than about Afghanistan. Some of them. Yeah, it seems like that. I mean, uh, have we ever, I guess there was like the quiz show thing with, uh, what, what was that show? Um, you know, the hundred thousand yeah, made the movie. Yeah. I can't remember what that was called. Um, like that was the big scandal of that time period, but this seems to be like something that's kind of usurped that. And it's, you know, I, I think of, you know, I, I grew up on game shows. I love game shows. 
and Jeopardy is kind of the, the, the game show that hit my, you know, I guess my 20s and up. But, um, you know, this goes back into the 1960s and then it had a lapse. And then now, you know, we've been watching it for the last several decades with um, Alex Trebek. I didn't know that our, our, our great Canadian Alex Trebek had such a coveted job until probably this mm. week. I know there was such ballyhoo when he, when he finally died and all the, the time that led up to that uh, with his cancer. But this is just incredible what, what we're going through right now. Yeah. I don't how, has, how has Elon Musk not made a robot that could do this job and solved all the problems? Just saying. I, I think um, the robot might actually be better than Mike Richards at this point. Well, I don't think the people, I don't think the Jeopardite, Jeopardites, I'm not sure what you call them. I'm not sure they're given up to LeVar, what's his name? LeVar Burton. Is it LeVar Burton? Right. Is that his name? Right. Or, or they clone Alex Trebek and bring Well, yeah. A hologram. Yes. A hologram. Or Alex Trebek cloned with Dolly the sheep and suddenly you have him back on the stage. I don't know. Right. A robotic goat. I want to talk to you a little bit because, I mean, as I've said a number of times, and I've said this actually many times over the years, and I truly believe this, you are fantastic at what you do. And an election, a federal election, any election, but a federal election is like, is like the happy place, I would assume, for an editorial cartoonist. There's just, a, you know, a million different things. But I want to talk about the five main candidates. Actually, we'll throw the sixth one in there in a minute. But the five main candidates in this country, we do this every once in a while when you're on and we're mm-hmm. talking because it seems like somehow you come on and there's often an election going on. But when you sit down, let's go through them. When you sit down and you are going to draw an editorial cartoon of Justin Trudeau, what mm-hmm. is the... What is the thing? What makes Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau in a cartoon? No, oh, it's those eyebrows. I think I mentioned this before. He's got, he's kind of got sleepy eyes, the eyelids and um, the, the uh, very uh, strong eyebrows that he has. Uh, if, you, if you look at them, they, you can, they're just magical. They're magical eyebrows. And I think that's what people are hypnotized by him just by looking at his eyebrows. Um, and of course, he he went through a period for the last several months and actually years, I think, with a beard. I think at the beginning of the the minority, he actually grew that beard, and all of a sudden, he became Mister Serious after uh, he announced the election, and I guess at the beginning of the summer, and and he got rid of the beard. But I, I think people were really appreciating the beard, so that was sort of the thing that cartoonists were latching on to. Um, and now we're going back to the old Justin Trudeau with the clean face. And it's, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of like the beard. I thought he looked good with the beard. Don't you? Well, the danger of the beard for him is he kind of looks like Fidel Castro with the beard. So you got to be a little careful when Justin Trudeau is wearing that beard. He's, he's, he's a little more of his own man without it. Aaron O'Toole. You're drawing Aaron O'Toole. What is the, what is the thing that makes a cartoon of Aaron O'Toole? Aaron O'Toole's mouth is very close to his nose, which is very similar to uh, his predecessor going back um, or sure. going before uh, the Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. Okay. He had a, a mouth that was very close to the nose. But he also has a very, he, he's got little beady eyes and he's got angry eyebrows. I, I hate to bring back to the eyebrows, but that's one of the distinguishing fa- uh, features of uh, Aaron O'Toole. And he's got this big giant line in between his eyebrows that is very characteristic and um you wouldn't know it but Aaron O'Toole is actually only a couple of years older than Justin Trudeau no uh, which no Aaron O'Toole is younger. younger than Justin Trudeau he's, he's two years younger than which is surprising that's crazy yes yes 
Yes. But look what he's done. He's 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 come out with the Mr. Clean look with that uh, black T-shirt and his, you know, he's obviously been working out. And um, I can see what's behind that. He wants to show himself to be, you know, the youthful Aaron O'Toole who can match, you know, the the marvelous eyebrows and hairs of of Justin Trudeau. And uh, you know, I think he got a barrage of um, ridicule for that. But you know, I, I think uh, it's worked out well for him. Good for him. Kind of weird to I- see, but. You know, good for him. I guess the, you know, when you look at those two, and I no, no one in the world would ever have guessed that Justin Trudeau was older, but I guess, you know, I saw that, that campaign ad the other day about Aaron O'Toole being in the army for 12 years or something. I guess being in the military, there's, you know, maybe some stresses that age you a little bit along the way. I don't know, but that, uh, he, I never would have guessed that he was old, or younger than Justin Trudeau. Never. Well, I think he was, he was a minister in the Harper government for a time, as I recall, maybe briefly, but I'm sure that would have aged him. <laughs> yeah, that too. All right. Now, Jugmeet Singh, I mean, look, it's all, I think for a lot of people, you'd say, well, it's obvious because he's the only leader who has a turban. So that would make him obvious. But I got to believe that, you know, we just talked about Mike Richards and, you know, saying something that he got burned for because people, well, it was inappropriate, but you, as a cartoonist, that's something you're going to obviously have to play, but I'm guessing you got to walk a little carefully with some of these things that y- you can identify who he is and show him, but not to the point where people are going to say you're mocking that part yeah. of him. Yeah. You definitely have to be very careful of that. And, um, you know, I, I have gotten, uh, letters, emails from people who sort of point out um, some of the, the alleged foibles I've done in depicting Jagmeet Singh. Um, but, you know, politicians, they, they understand that we have a rich history of satire in this country. They know it's part of the territory. And often I think um, people out there tend to be a little more sensitive towards, uh, you know, uh, minorities, ethnicities that enter the political sphere. And there tends to be a a bit of um, worry at the beginning. We saw that with uh, Barack Obama when when he just started out his presidency. Um, And we we saw that a bit with with Jagmeet Singh, but I think people have sort of become accustomed to the fact that it's part of the, it's part of uh, the discourse to have ridicule and satire directed towards our, our leaders. So, yeah, I, I don't worry as much now when I draw um, Jagmeet Singh and, and his turban. I mean, before it was, but it, it, you just have to get the people accustomed to, to seeing him in, in editorial cartoons, and that, that's fine. I think your point, you know, and you use Obama as, a, as an example, and I think you're onto something because, I mean, you, back in the day when I used to watch Saturday Night Live occasionally, they had, they seemed to have no idea how to poke fun at Barack Obama. And I, I always got the sense that it was out of a fear, maybe because they were fans, but also because you don't want that accusation that somehow you're a racist when you poke fun, even though the exact same thing might have been poked at someone else. Right. If you take it the wrong way or someone takes it as a racist thing, then that's the word that gets thrown around. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think, but but with Saturday Night Live as an example, I think they actually did get a little bit better. They brought in uh, a guy who actually did satirize him. I forget what his name is. Quite Pharaoh, something Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And obviously, you know, the, the, the Canadians are going to be more on the Democratic side in the U.S., and so they do a much better job lampooning the uh, the GOP guys. Um, but I, I, I should point to to uh, Canada. Uh, this hour has 22 minutes, and Sean Majumber. Yes. Majumber? Is that his name? Majumber, yeah. He did a very good take on, um, on Jagmeet Singh, if you recall, a few years ago, and it... it, it uh, you know he's he's Indian himself, so you know it it made it easier to to mock him. I, I think you have a little more of a challenge if you're a white guy and you're making fun of a black guy or um, you know an Indian guy. Yes, I um, do remember that it was a skit and it was very sexy, lying on silk sheets and stuff. And it, yes, it was a it was a very very yeah. funny skit that he did about it. And and the other thing is Graham that I've always thought, and you know maybe this is just me, but there is something about. You know, if you're with your friends and all your other friends are getting teased and they've got a nickname and it's, you know, they're being poked fun at a little bit, whatever, and you're the one guy that isn't being poked fun at, that doesn't mean they're respecting you more. It means you're not one of the group. It means you're left out somehow. I mean, not if it's super mean, but there's, there's a, there's a, there's a way people treat people if they have respect for them and have fun with them and, and think well of them that they can poke fun a little bit. And I, I agree with you. I don't think any of these politicians would be the ones who would be offended by anything you or any other cartoonist would draw. They'd be offended um, if you didn't. Uh, you know, there there have been politicians who are, are very thin-skinned that we've had. I'm not going to name any names, but then there's others. I will name, actually. I'll name uh, Bob Bertina, who uh, got a lot of um, ridicule directed by me to him, but he seemed to be the one guy that kind of like took it. He, he took his, um, the ridicule and I, I, I was kind of brutal towards him, but he took it all in and he was, he was fine with that. Other mayors of the city have not been so receptive to the cartoons and, and other car, other mayors have just been flat out boring. And I, I just, I, I can't draw them because they don't really give me anything, but at least, uh, I'll give this as much as I, I gave it out to, uh, to Bob Bertina you know, he was he was one of the best mayors that I've ever had to uh, comment on in the past. The lesson but, to be learned by the, the current mayor, who is quite boring, quite frankly. I'll, I'll say that, without naming names. Without naming names. All right, let's continue on with the leaders here. Not to leave that, but time is short, and I want to make sure we get through this. Um, same things we just said about Jugmeet Singh and about how you have to, I never actually asked you what the was before we leave. What is the thing then? Is it the turban with Jugmeet Singh or is there something else that is the thing that makes the cartoon of him? Um, you know, I think his facial hair is obviously one thing. He's got a great mustache that curls up and he works on that. And, uh, that's always fun to draw. Um, he's, He's got eyebrows again. I, I hate to come back to the eyebrows, but he's got these sort of uh, very expressive eyebrows, um, and he's got a, a little dollop of gray in his uh, beard, which is always nice to do the swirl thing. So <laughs> that's what I got to say with, about Jagmeet. Same thing though about being careful. I'm assuming the same is with um, with uh, Anime Paul of the Green Party, right? And with with Miss Paul, I've, I have drawn her a few times and. Uh, being black, obviously that's, you know, I'm a white guy. It's going to be a, a challenge to draw her, but I, I have drawn her on three occasions that I can think of, which is actually more so than I did of uh, Elizabeth May in 
uh, you know, the period of five years, I've drawn more of, of uh, Miss Paul in, in, what, seven months than Elizabeth May in seven months. Um, she wears these wild uh, suits, like these white suits with big, giant pants and big, giant lapels. So I, I go after that. Uh, you know, she's bald-headed, and that sort of jumps out to you. And I, I think she's easily recognizable just by that bald head. But, I, you know... She's one person I've, I've, I, you gotta sympathize with the poor woman because she's just been, you know, she's just taken it so hard by her own party. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, they've mangled her. By her own party. So I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for her. I, I mean, I know it's, the Green Party is kind of a useless uh, party to vote for because we, we're all being told that, you know, there's no hope for her in, uh, in the Toronto riding that she's running in. And we're probably gonna have, Elizabeth May is the only seat um, of an elected Green Party member in the next after the next election. And how sad is that? You know, we're going well, and, and likely going to be the next, you know, the interim leader as they choose the next leader. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for for enemy Paul. And I think what she's going through is, is brutal and um, saves money on party cocktail parties. Yeah, saves money on the Green Party cocktail party budget, but. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and Yves Francois Blanchette, th this, uh, this guy seems to me like he would be a real challenge to do and be recognizable because he's kind of the everyday looking kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to like a guy like Gilles Duceppe, who, um, famously was drawn with, a, uh, cheese, <laughs> like he went through a cheese factory. So people would put a plastic <laughs> thing over his head. Like, I, one of the I, most, I one of the most, one of the most horrible choices for a leader to have let himself have that happen. It was just regrettable, oh, but I know. brilliant. It was gold for us. Gold for us. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, Francois Blanchet is just, um, yeah, he's, he is Mr. Bland. There's not much, like I, I, I hardly have ever drawn the guy. He's kind of out of sight. I mean, the, the Quebec politics offers up so many great personalities. And, you know, you can go back to Gilles Duceppe was one, but even better was uh, Lucien Bouchard. He was fantastic to draw. And um, and he was a real character. And, of course, you know, the, the history of him losing his leg and everything. And he was premier of Quebec. Uh, it's so, you know, as much as, you know, we sort of detest this party that wants to separate from Canada, it it, it really has a lot of great history in the short time they've been part of the political atmosphere. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a big challenge for Blanchet because, um, or, you know, where they go after the next election, people say that he's going to be much more, pro you know, he's going to win more seats. Uh, we'll see. But um, I think he's, he's got a solidified um, kind of career for the next few years in, in Canadian federal politics. But and finally, what, what and this, draw? What, 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 oh yeah, what do you draw? Writing thing. There's nothing. There's nothing about him. The glasses, that, maybe. Well, maybe uh, his beard, like his kind of beard that is very closely shaved. I, there isn't much glasses in his in his closely shaved beard. That's probably it. I gotta, I've got to go through a lot of reference photos um, before I before I put him uh, on paper. The other one, and, and it's funny because uh, Maxime Bernier, who, um, you know, People's Party is, is still out there, but is 
I mean, even when you now see reports of what the leaders are doing today, they don't even include him anymore. He's sort of been the completely forgotten man. I don't know if he's even being invited to the one debate. But anyway, if you were drawing Maxime Bernier, what is the thing? Yeah, I don't I don't know about Bernier. I actually had to look him up the other day to see if he he's even in the running. And apparently he is. But yeah, the big thing about um, Bernier, Maxime, Mad Max, Maxime Bernier, is his big giant nose. He's got like a huge nose. Like, look at the guy. It just sticks out a mile from his face. Um, and, you know, he's been around for a long time. He was a cabinet minister in Harper's government going way back to the mid 2000s. So he's he's been around longer, almost as long as uh, Justin Trudeau, actually. And uh, so I've I can go back to like the, the mid eighties and see cartoons uh, drawn of him then. Um, so, you know, he's, he is sort of this politician who is kind of there, but is like a ghost of, of a past leader. I, I don't see much future in that guy. I mean, I'll give him points for, for tenacity. He's, he's there, but um, he's, he's really not there. I know. It is, um, you'll be able to see all Graham stuff. I mean, he is, uh, as I say, this is, this is a kid in a candy store right now for Graham. And before we let you go, I saw something today. I have to uh, let you talk about that. You just created your own art gallery. <laughs> right. Art steps. It's, uh, Explain to people where your art gallery is. Cause it's very cool. Yeah, it is. Um, and this, this came out of, um, a Quebec, uh, organization that puts on a really great, um, art show every fall called Emile Visage, which is a festival in Val David. And I've been to Val David, it's kind of in the Laurentians of Quebec. And they have a, a show around Thanksgiving weekend and they just do caricatures. They, they, they have an old town hall in the, in the town that they open up and they, uh, they bring in caricatures from all over Quebec and some across from Canada. I was invited a few years back, some from Europe. And we just sit there in this room and we draw caricatures of people walking by and we have these exhibitions. And, you know, as a way to kind of remedy the problem of not having a, a you know, an inhuman festival, they've got a virtual show uh, using um, a software called Art Steps. And uh, I've just been able to put together my own little virtual gallery. And uh, you can go to my website, www.makaicartoons.net, and you can see for yourself my little art show of cartoons going back to uh, 1997 when I was first hired at the Hamilton it's, Secretary. So. It is very, it is very cool. It's well worth the trip. Makai cartoons dot, do you say dot com or dot net? Dot net. Dot net. Makai cartoons dot net. Go look it up. Um, well worth your time. Listen, Graham, we, uh, we are short on time, unfortunately, but love when you're able to come on here and we will be uh, obviously looking for your cartoons in the paper because they're always fantastic or online or, or at your art gallery now. So there you go. Uh, Graham Makai. Thanks. Thanks for doing Thank this. Thank you, Scott. That's really great. Thanks. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.